All right, as we, uh, as we get back to our seats and into uh, Matthew 6, kind of want to set us up here just a little bit, give a couple uh, opening notes here on the, uh, on the sermon today. Um, we will be in Matthew 6. Uh, it would be helpful to be in, uh, in the Bible looking at this. Um, there will be some of, the, some of the scripture up on the screen, but being in the Bible is always better. Um, yeah, so, uh, so traditionally we do, you know, end of the year, Instead of this, we do a, uh, a kind of a focus on the topic of prayer, uh, but we're, we're always, you know, if you've ever been at Parkview for any number of, of weeks, you know that the people of pra- uh, Parkview are committed to prayer. Uh, it, it, is, it is one of the, the greatest joys that I've had. I've not seen a church pray as much as Parkview does. They get joked, uh, the, guy, the, the other pastors you know, sometimes joke about how, how much I don't actually know how to pray uh, because I've not seen people pray this much. And so it's, it's just a treat to, to, to be able to, uh, to, to, to be up here and speak to something that, that we hold so very dearly, and rightly so, uh, at Parkview. Um, and so that's maybe a couple of notes that I would give anytime I would preach on prayer, is that I feel like I am, there are many texts and many topics that I feel like I'm not, um, you know, I'm a hypocrite, you know, just because the text is actually exposed that I'm not actually where I need to be in my, in my journey of sanctification. But prayer is one that's really tough for me. And so I, I would say that uh, you will receive this as, as a man who's a Bible man who wants to preach uh, the word of God, uh, the gospel truth. But it is, it, it, prayer is an ongoing struggle for me. Uh, it is, it is tough for me to, 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 to pray sometimes. Um, and so, uh, so don't think that you're getting a sweet TED talk from an expert on prayer because you are getting uh, you're getting a, a man who's prayerfully prepared this text and, uh, and has been shaped by it uh, pretty immensely. Uh, another thing is that I, I would encourage you, because prayer sometimes, we, we, we just think, oh man, this is just the same old topic over and over and over. I, I would really encourage you as, you as you hear the sermon today, as we, as we look at the words that are here uh, in Matthew 6, that you would, um, that you would calibrate your hearts afresh. Uh, and maybe, maybe not go to one side and say, this is, this is boring, I've heard this so many times, but that you would hear it with freshness. Um, and maybe on the other side is, is not hear everything that we're supposed to be doing and tend toward legalism. Say, I just have to be this way as a Christian. But really the point of, of this, this text here today that we have is to, that it would shape our hearts, that our hearts would be prayerful. Not that we would just always be praying all the time and being good Christians that way, or that we would just say, yeah, I already have mastered this text. And so I, I really encourage you to be consciously calibrating your hearts. I've prayed that the Spirit do that, but it's always nice when you work in step with the Spirit as well. Uh, and then also um, that you wouldn't just see this as something that we talk about. Um, we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer just a bit, but not just something that's defending why we do what we do on a Sunday morning, but rather that it's, it's for daily living. I mean, these are things that are for every, every sermon, but I felt like this is a great one to really highlight that, is that we're not listening um, we get some knowledge in here. We understand the Bible a little bit more, but, but the big point is, what do we do with this? Um, that, that, that we're actually receiving instructions from God on how to live rightly uh, with right hearts. And so that's, that's kind of just some opening notes here on prayer. Uh, so I want to uh, focus in here a little bit on, uh, on Matthew 6, 1, uh, I guess Matthew 6, 5 through 8. It's a, it's a short uh, little bit of scripture here, but it's, it's rich and it's meaty. Um, one of the practices we have to, to shape our hearts to the reverence of Christ is that if you are physically able, I would ask that you stand out of reverence for Christ um, and reverence for God and his word and what he has revealed to us of himself in Matthew 6. I'm going to start here getting our minds ready in, in, in verse 1, then I'll jump to 5 through 8 if you're following along. Beware 
of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I, uh, as I kind of think through this, I, I'm a guy who really loves definitions. I feel like those are, those are very helpful when we're talking about something. It's, it's good to define what we're talking about. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he, he wrote a book on prayer. I think it's called Prayer, uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful book. Uh, but in it, he defines prayer as a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. It's personal, it's communicative, and that it communicates, and it's a response to the knowledge of God. If I say that backwards, maybe say his definition backwards, he's saying that what prayer is, is that we understand who God is. We have a knowledge of God, and what knowledge we have of God then, then elicits a response. We're going to respond to who we think God is. If we think that God doesn't ever listen, then we're not going to actually do anything there. If we think that God is always angry at us, then we're going to apologize a whole bunch. If we think that God is going to do everything that we want him to do, and that's what his job is, then we're going to pray to him very expectantly with a whole shopping list of things. And so it's saying that what we know of God will shape how we communicate to him. But the prayer is a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. That we know of this God, and what we know of him, we then go to him and we communicate to him in person. And so that's a really nice definition of prayer. Uh, there's, there's one that, uh, and I think that's really helpful. Uh, there's another guy, uh, Paul Miller. He writes a book called the Pray- A Praying Life. Fantastic book. Um, both of these are fantastic books. Um, and, and in it, he, he shapes it this way. He, he says it uh, in a way that I think is really helpful for our purpose today. He says a praying life. He's explaining uh, all these aspects of what a praying life is, and, and, and three of them that he points out are a praying life becomes aware of the story. It becomes integrated, and in then it, it brings all the different areas of life and faith all together. It's integrated together, uh, and it reveals the heart. I think that's really helpful, because if there's, there's this aspect that, that Tim Keller's saying is prayer um, is kind of a response to the knowledge of God, what Paul Miller's doing is he's saying there's something else that happens. It's not just that we pray and that's what we think of God. There's something happening while we pray. There's something happening to us while we pray. This is a praying life becomes aware of the story. The more we pray and the way that we pray, it shapes the way we understand our part in the story. I mean, the more times we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Our Father, our Father, our Father, our Father, the more it's shaping our worldview to understand that we have a heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven. It becomes integrated. The more that we pray, the more that our, our areas of life, of faith, maybe even of doubt, of hope, all become integrated, and we start to see a blending there within our prayer, and it reveals our heart. Now, there are many other things that he says, you know, that prayer does. Fantastic book. I highly recommend reading it. 
But those are the ones that I kind of want to pull out here because something is happening. Jesus is doing something, kind of what Paul Miller is saying here in our text today. In one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus recasts the story masterfully, moving from legalism and religious obligation, that, that was the tradition there, he moves from legalism and religious obligation to virtue and relational invitation. But Jesus does this, this move. It's a, it's a huge move, but it's subtle. He does this in a very first century Jewish kind of way. And what we've read uh, here today as we were standing is only part of, of a bigger sermon. It's only part of actually like one point of his sermon. So what is this Jewish style? How is he doing this? I think it's, this, is, this is so helpful. The Jewish way, the first century Jewish way of making an argument, of, of urging people to something, is that you give the principle, and then you give examples of the principle. This is where having a, a Bible open is, is going to be helpful. If you look at verses 1 through, let's go with 18. There's a three-point sermon right here, which I love because I love those. He gives this principle here, and I'll, I'll just kind of show the work. Uh, and the principle is in Matthew 1. We read that. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. That's the big point he's making right here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And then he gives three examples. Now, you can check, check the work here. Uh, verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy. There's one way in which we practice our faith, our, our righteousness before others. Verse 5, he says, when you pray, there's another way that we practice righteousness before others. And then the final way that he gives is verse 16, when you fast. When you give in your charity, in your generosity, when you pray, and when you fast. It's really interesting that he, that he, he just leads off with that. And, that and, and when we slow down and read the scripture, we can see, oh, yeah, right there, he's saying the same thing over and over. Now, I, I maybe go a little bit further for your own study. It's not just when he says, when you do this thing. Like, if you just take these, these three sections line by line, he's not changing many words. You hear the same thing over and over and over again, and he's giving this, this, this method, this pattern of how we should think about cultivating Christian virtues. And so he's talking about these things um, of, of charity, of prayer, of fasting. Now today we're going we're gonna to focus really in on prayer, as I've said several times because I think that this one's going to be the helpful one here. I mean, it's the topic of the day, but it's also going to be really helpful for us because it seems to be the most private of all of these. Uh, and, and so if we go toward how private we can get with our own prayers and how public we can get with our own prayers, I feel like that might give us help in understanding all of Matthew 6. So the point is going to be on prayer. We're going to focus on that. But what we're talking about can actually be applied to these other texts and then to all of life. So I think this is going to be pretty helpful. So, here we go. Here, you get two points. It's just a two-point sermon here today. Point one, pray to our rewarding Father. We're told to pray to our Father, and that's a big deal, but we're not just told to pray to a Father. There is something about this Father that we know. The knowledge of God being a rewarding Father is different from Him being not rewarding or whatever. Um, and so we're going to pray to Him differently if we know that He is a rewarding Father. Okay, verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, that they have received their reward. So, a uh, couple observations on this. The hypocrites pray publicly that they may be seen by others, 
But the movie here is however God sees in secret. I think that's maybe a nice principle for you. The hypocrites pray publicly for, the, for, for public praise, however God sees in secret. And so we're really talking about public praise and the reward of the Father. The term hypocrite uh, literally means to, or, or I, I guess hypocrisy, means to publicly, or to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes or motives. It's to put forward something that isn't the same as what's actually motivating it and what's actually there. It's to do something outwardly and not do something inwardly. We do this quite a bit. Um, I do this quite a bit. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull the audience right now. Um, how many of you have ever maybe uh, uh, done the rough draft prayer when you know your turn's coming up and, and you're praying to God and you're like, I'm going I'm to rough draft this so it's eloquent when I say it because I don't know actually what to say. Yeah, yeah. I see smiles, so you don't have to raise your hand. Thank you for being honest. Thank you so much, Mary, for, for breaking that. I do it all the time. I'm like, oh, I'm coming, I'm coming. Okay, what do I? Yeah, uh, we do that. And, and I don't want to say that that's a horrible thing to do. I think sometimes it's nice just to concisely state what you need to say. But I don't do that, that version much. I'm not thinking like, oh, this will be nice to be concise. I'm thinking, I want to say the sweet thing. I want to say something insightful. I want to be, be great in this. Uh, this is what the hypocrites do. Because I'm not actually really, on um, first go, I, I'm not usually that eloquent. I'm not usually thinking about it that way. I'm usually pretty selfish. And rather than praying for someone's good, I'm, I'm praying that God would just give me patience with that person. And then I have to like rough draft it. And I'm like, oh, this is probably the better thing to say here. Oftentimes, we, we go about this in a way that's very subtle, but very hypocritical. Jesus masterfully uses these hypocrites as a foil for righteous behavior. He says, see, over here, we all know that hypocrites are bad, so this is what they're doing, and this is how they pray. He says, when you pray, don't pray like them. And he's going to, kind of a very Psalms kind of a way, say, but here's the righteous way of doing this. Like, here's the other option. So don't do this way, but do this way. He's going to do this over and over, three times over, in this, you know, section of, of, the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. When you give, don't, like the hypocrites, do like this. When you pray, not like the hypocrites, but like these people. And when you fast, not like the hypocrites, but like these people. And he uses that word hypocrite a lot. And he, this is where he starts to use the word hypocrite in Matthew because he wants to go a little bit further here because he's not just picking a random word. He's picking something that we really should not like. He goes there in, uh, in Matthew 15. He's going to develop this more very vindictively, but Jesus is the one saying this. He says, Isaiah is talking to you about this. You, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophet, uh, prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And guilty is charged here. I don't know how many times I've prayed, you know, like, God, keep us safe. Let us sleep good tonight. Um, and I worry sometimes that I'm teaching my children vain, vain worship, you know, just root memory. There's something formative in it. But if I don't continue to give it meaning and talk about it that way, it can become that. I know that there are a lot of prayers that we pray um, that go that way. I mean, we're a campus that repeats prayer a lot. Um, and it can become that. And he says it's vain. I think that's so amazing. Uh, that's so insightful. The heart is far from me, and it's vain. This is in the Old Testament. This word here is um, the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, the teacher, the preacher, Colette. He develops this word vanity 
And he says, it's like smoke. It means nothing. It just goes away. And when we do that, when we just, when we just go out and we say those things, it's, it's vain prayer. So I know I'm putting a whole bunch of, you know, heavy, this is how Jesus is teaching this. He's going to give us the turn. He's going to say, this is good. How do we go? What is the right way forward? He really wants to clarify, though, that when we have hypocritical prayer, what we're doing is that we're setting the goal as something different than what it needs to be. We're setting the goal as public praise. And to get that public praise, what do the hypocrites do? They go out and they pray loudly on the street corner. They stand and pray in the synagogues, the the religious areas, and the street corners anywhere that they may be seen by others. I mean, that's their goal. They pray so that people believe in God. No, it doesn't say that. They pray so that people will see them pray. So I I, want to, you know, just, just pause on this and maybe ask this question, no, 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 we're going to go verse 6, and then I'll ask the question. Uh, verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room. This is the good turn. This is what the hypocrites do. Now they go to the good turn. This is what we should do. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's where I want to ask the question. I look at this. And as someone who prays, not only at, you know, our table, before we eat, but also at Chick-fil-A, and also any other restaurant, um, I got to ask myself, like, should we stop praying in public? Is that what this text is saying? Like, it feels like he's saying, like, don't let anybody see you pray. Maybe a different way is, uh, if this is the norm, if this is where we're going with this, we should stop doing this, then why do we, even at the campus level, why do we pray corporately. We just did that already today. Why do we do that out loud? Are we doing something that we're not supposed to do? These are questions that we can ask the Bible, because the Bible has these questions. Sometimes we don't think long enough to get good answers. I'm, and so I caution you from just hating on the Bible in your, in, your, in, your, in your study, but I'd really encourage you to ask tough questions of the text. We'll never grow if we're not wrestling with it. The answer is the norm is not private prayer. Jesus is not teaching, you must pray so that no one hears you. Because he prays in public. (laughs) Feeding of 5,000, and then Jesus prayed and asked for a blessing on the food. It's even like to that level. He's not just praying that their sins be forgiven. He's praying before the meal in public. At least 5,000 there. And so the norm is not private prayer. He's not saying that's how we have to pray. The norm is being established, uh, that norm that's being established is a right heart. And this is the key. This is through all of Scripture. And when you pray, when, when you do these things, do it with the right heart. And so, it's not public that he's, that he's going after. The public uh, praying, it's more of the performative praying. Because these people, is, regardless of where they're praying, they pray so that they be seen. It's the performative act of doing this. And you can do this with any aspect of your worship. But it's not that we're doing it in public. It's that we're performing our worship for others. And the performance itself reveals the heart. But it doesn't simply reveal the heart. It also shapes the heart. Because it's really awesome when you, when you do a performative act of, of worship. When you preach a sermon and you're not actually preaching it so that people be edified. You're preaching it so that people think you're awesome. And then they say, well, you're awesome. And then it becomes addictive. And then you start to use God and his gifts in ways that they're not meant to be. And this is all the way back to where Paul Miller is saying, 
And then you're constructing a story that's very different from reality, and you're using your prayer to go into some bizarre alternate reality that, that, doesn't, that isn't there. So, so what, what's at stake here? What, what are we doing here? Jesus didn't condemn public prayer. As I've said before, he indicated with his own prayers in public. One's internal motivation is the central concern. One's internal motivation is the central concern. We need to get past the hypocrisy. We need to get past that and really get to where we're integrated, where we are, where our hearts are actually out there. Whether it is long and eloquent, whether it is simple and dry, whether it has a bit of frustration and anger and lament in it, or whether it's filled with joy, it needs to be rightly reflecting how we are understanding and engaging God. Not out on the street corners, not up on the stage, just so that people think, wow, they're great at praying. But I want to ask a question. These words are not only uh, to express our thoughts uh, oh, no, sorry. Uh, in, our, in our prayer together, so what are we doing with corporate prayer? In our corporate prayer, we are learning how to repent, to praise, to thank, to request, and to relate rightly to God. That's what the purpose of our prayer is when we are together. In our prayer together, we are learning the right desires and the right theology. In our praying together, we are learning the words of our relationship with God. That's what prayer is doing. It's shaping us even as we are praying. That's not all it's doing, but that's, that's a lot of what prayer is. These words are not only to express our thoughts and desires as we understand God and reality, but they also contribute to the shaping of our thoughts and our desires as we understand God and reality. They express what we know of God, but they also contribute to how we are developing a new knowledge, an ongoing knowledge of God as, as we request and he answers with a yes or a no as we interact in this relationship. It is a personal, it is a relational communication with the God that we know. And that's what we do kind of at a corporate level, but it works then at a private level as well. How does our private prayer inform our worldview? How does private prayer specifically continue to move me toward the knowledge of God or knowing God rightly and rightly responding? I think maybe three things. I, I, I don't know if this is a complete list here. I think prayer does this. It, it informs our own individual worldview in that when we pray, we acknowledge that we have a need. I need something, God, that I can't do on my own. And that's tough to admit. If you're someone like me who, 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 who gets stuff done, it's hard to say, I can't get this done. I can't make that person believe in you. I can't reconcile with this person or that person because I'm too stubborn and it hurt too much. But you can. You can make a way. I can't heal this person. I can't uh, protect my kids when they're away from the home. It acknowledges that we are needy people. Prayer does that, and it shapes our worldview, and it expresses, rightly, our relationship with God. Prayer acknowledges not simply our need, but also a trust in God. If we didn't believe that God would actually do these things, then why would we talk to him? And there's so many of my friends that I don't actually call when I need God to do something because they can't get it done. 
But sometimes I don't remember that. It's easy for me right now to tell you that in a way that, that's, I don't know, corrective. But I find sometimes that I don't want to talk to God. And I end up calling all of my friends and telling them, listing my grievances, telling them, side with me, my ways here, validate me, affirm me, tell me where I'm going, and I forget that prayer is there. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're, you're not on the side of, of, of uh, seeing God as highly as some other people might see. Maybe you're kind of there with me, and you get real mad, and you just call people, or you gather people, and you run your list. In effect, you're praying to the one who you think will answer. You're talking to the people and the little gods that you want to help solve the problem. Because sometimes when I get there, I find oftentimes I have to confess something. Because I know that God's answer is going to be, yeah, you've got to change. You're actually wrong on this one. And I find that I end up calling and spreading my net a lot further when I know the answer is going to be, just admit you messed up. But there's also a reward. There's a reward because you have a, 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 a rewarding father. You have a loving father who, who there in that secret place, seeing you and your motives for who you are, he already knows who you are. But when you own it, there is a reward that he says, now we can do something. Now we can go somewhere. And so that's speaking to this idea of, um, of public praise. And we saw that we, we, we can pray to our rewarding father. Here's then the next two verses here are going to develop this then. We can pray to our attentive father. And so we have a God who is not simply there, but is a God who is paying attention. Matthew 6, 7, and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so, maybe here's just a, a, a concise summary of that. The pagans, or the Gentiles, um, pray to be heard, however God hears the heart. That's kind of what he's saying here in these two verses. So, he says that the pagans pray with many words to be heard. And I, and I want to put this here, right there at the end of that verse, that they will be heard for their many words, and I would insert this because this is kind of where, where, where it's directed, is that they, they would be heard by their many words by their gods. You see, these first two verses when he's saying their prayer for public praise is weird. It's talking about this like man-centered prayer where we just want to see what's going on there. Now in these two, he's going to kind of take the other side and say this is kind of like the divine spiritual realm-centered aspect of it and how you can go wrong on that. And so it's not that they would be heard by the people. He's already taken care of that, and so they have the reward, and it's smoke. It's vanity. Uh, but now, returning, he says, but they pray with many words to be heard by their gods. ESV study Bible, so helpful. Uh, the study notes, copy-paste, says, pagans repeated the names of their gods or the same words over and over without thinking. We get this in 1 Kings 18, in Acts 19, both Old and New Testaments, the, God, uh, the pagans are praying to the gods over and over with all these things so that they get their attention. Jesus is prohibiting mindless mechanical repetition, not the earnest repetition that flows from the imploring heart. It's mindless, mechanical repetition, not an earnest, not an honest, inside-your-heart repetition that flows 
from you exploring where your emotions and your hopes and your expectations may be. And Jesus says, verse 8, don't be like them. Don't be like that. And had some friends uh, visiting us. They, we were having a, a great time talking about, um, we just happened to both have gone to Japan over the last couple of years. And um, we were talking about this exact thing. I've been thinking about it, you know, all week, and it's just so sweet. So here's a picture of Japan. So my family had gone to Japan a few years ago. This is not a picture of us in Japan, but um, this is great. Um, Shintoism is huge there, um, and they have these shrines all over the place. Uh, and so uh, my daughter Emma and I, she's now seven, she was, she was younger than this. Um, we get to one of these, and so uh, what you'll see here is you see there's like a bell there, like there's some bells, and then they got these ropes. Hey, you see that? You need to see that. Uh, and then down at the bottom, uh, there are people and they're praying, okay? And so what happens is we go to this shrine, and, and she, she, uh, she asks, she's like, why are they ringing so many bells? What's going on? And it, that's like an innocent question. Like, she's not like skeptical of it. She's just like, it's kind of cool. I don't see that. And me, in like my younger evangelistic fervor, I said, oh, sweet Emma, it's because they have to wake up their gods because their gods get tired. Our God doesn't get tired. We don't have to wake him up. Uh, which, on the one side, that was like a total like, jerk way to say that. Um, absolutely. Uh, all truth, no love. It was truth because that's very much the idea of ancient Near Eastern gods. Like, this is what's going on in the Old Testament. So I wasn't wrong in saying that. I mean, if, even if you read that with that eye of, um, of, that, of that waking and sleeping, they had gods that woke and, and, and slept because they got tired. But we have an almighty God. We have a God who, who doesn't faint or get weary. And that's a big deal. And you can read that in the, in the Psalms. The psalmist knows this and, and plays with that. Not the way to say that when you're the tourist and you're like, ah, this thing that you really value, it's dumb. Uh, that doesn't go so well. My daughter, I don't know if she forgot it or not. But it was fun to say at the moment and uh, great to illustrate now. Um, but uh, it's empty phrases. How do you get the attention... Well, I guess we pray not because, we pray to God not because he's a better God. Um, we pray to God because he's a true God. We pray to God because he's a powerful God. We pray to God because he is an attentive God. And so I don't want to make this like a, yeah, we picked the right one um, kind of a conversation. But we get this other, this other term. I want to get like really personal because we're kind of up in the, in the world of different gods and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I want to, there's a way that we relate to God. We've been given this idea of father. It's here in the text. And that brings it really personal. And so I want to take kind of what I just talked about, but also incorporate this idea of Father, because that's where Jesus is actually going. How do you get the attention of an inattentive Father? Like, let's go there first. I've written down just kind of a list from my own experience, but also from what I've heard other people say. Uh, here are ways to get the attention of a Father who doesn't pay attention. Uh, you speak loudly, and you just scream or whatever. Um, you speak uh, repeatedly, just over and over again, dad, dad, okay, buddy the elf, uh, dad, 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 wake up, um, speak at length, so that when you get the attention, it's not like, you, oh, I finally got it, you just got to keep talking to him, because as soon as I stop talking, you're going to turn to the next thing, and no, we got something else here to talk about, you got that? We speak beautifully, 
so that if, if, if he doesn't pay attention, then maybe other people will be like, have you heard him talk? You should probably listen to him. And maybe we can get somebody else to do that. We kind of do that with our prayer, huh? We do that with our prayer when we don't think that God pays attention. Now, we may not have bells in Christianity uh, to wake up our God to pray, but we kind of do that and live the same way that the, that the Shinto religion does in the way that we pray sometimes. Now, I don't want to oversimplify or overcorrect like the words that we use, but I want to make sure that we're attentive to our hearts. When we take that to our Heavenly Father, we revert to the wrong story. We revert to uh, uh, one of the principles in Jesus' word here is that God, your Heavenly Father, is always attentive. So you don't have to get his attention. I really think it's there. Because we have to ask this question. Why does he know already what our need is? I feel like on the one side, I mean, because that's the corrective, isn't it? He says, when you pray, don't be like them. They pray this way. With their many words, I think the direct parallel would be, instead, pray concisely, right? Like, that seems like that's what the turn is, but he turns, and it's not the same thing. He says, when you pray, um, don't be like them, for your father already knows what you need to ask. Like, he's not saying, like, be concise. He's saying something totally different. He says, God already knows. And I have to ask the question, like, what's the point? Like, what's the point of prayer? If God already knows what we're going to pray, why do I even pray? I mean, you can go off a horrible, you know, slippery slope into, into a dark place if you're not clinging to the word and what we know of God. I think prayer is an alignment of our will to our Heavenly Father's will. Prayer is an affirmation of our dependence on our Heavenly Father. And I've been chewing on that a bit, but even the more that I think about this question, if God already knows everything, then why, why do I even pray? The more I've thought about this, I'm, I'm convinced it's not the right question. Rather than ask, what good is my prayer anyway, we do well to look at God's seeming foreknowledge here of our needs and ask, how does God know my need before I ask? I think the answer is because he's here, he's real, and he's paying attention to you. He knows that. If you've ever had a kid or you've ever been a kid, it seems like parents kind of know a little bit more of the story than you thought. You can pray, I hurt. And an attentive father says, yeah, I've been you. I've been watching. I know you hurt. I looked like it hurt. You say, I messed up. Yeah, I know. I look pretty. You did that with, with gusto. <laughs> I know. Uh, you say, I'm so happy. This is so good. And they say, yeah, I know. I'm happy there with you. That's the kind of father the Bible reveals. Like, that's the kind of father that we have. We can pray to him because he's an attentive father. We don't have to wake him up. We don't have to get his attention. He's sitting there watching us individually all the time. He's looking at the horizon for the prodigal to come back. And I think to this end, then, 
we hear the Westminster Shorter Catechism say, this is their definition of it, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. On the one hand, we pray because we know who God is. But what are we doing with our, with our prayers? Is that we're offering up our desires and saying, please help make them better. Please help make them more like what is glorifying to you. But also, please take them. And so then we get to this, this, this verse, verse 9. Verse 9 says, pray, like, or pray then like this. That's so helpful as Jesus gives us a pattern for prayer. Now, I'm going to go through the, uh, the Lord's Prayer here because he then models for us this heart-shaming, this worldview-shaping uh, way of, um, of prayer. And so we do this, we've done this for over a couple of years now. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, we pray it, our kids learn it, and we pray it all together. I kind of want to slow it down here, uh, and I'm going to read the lines of the Lord's Prayer. Give us a prompt, and then just give you a moment to maybe consider how you might pray more in line with, with what we are being told here at the heart level, or just pray, just do the work and pray. So, uh, can we get that first slide that we always, we pray uh, up here? So he says, our Father who art in heaven. I mean, that's, that's a great one. Where is, are you my Father? How do I relate to you as Father? Help me relate to you as Father. And you're in heaven, my heavenly Father. Let me suspend the, ju- the judgments or the, the connections I may have of a good or a bad Father here on earth. Like, let's put that on the side and let's look at you as my Father. And so maybe pray something within there, hallowed be thy name, and let you be known as that, that you are holy, you are the holy father. And so what I want to do here is I'm going to read a line, I just kind of set it up with that one. I would begin our prayer, and then I'm going to read these lines, give a moment of silence that you can pray in line with what is being called for in these. So, God, our father, we thank you that you are, you are real, you are our father, not just a, a, an inescapable God, We thank you that you are holy and that you ask us to pray to us and that you hear us and that you respond to us. Now as we pray, we pray that your kingdom come. Pray that God uh, and his will as he desires be done and that you see, hear, and follow that will, not yours. God, I pray that you would frustrate our plans when they are against yours. I pray that you would encourage us, resource us to accomplish your will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The next line, give us this day our daily bread. You can pray, God, give me what I need today, not just superpowers to get through the day, but give me Christ in a way that will carry me through the day. Pray that now. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So they got to be together. Not simply forgive me, but forgive me as I forgive others. So whether that's please forgive me 
because I am really good at forgiving, or whether that's probably the real one. Please help me forgive better. Pray now. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray that you would be able to see temptation when it's there, and that you would be able to stand against it, walk away from it. Wherever you are most tempted, not just general temptation, where you know you will be tempted, where you are tempted, and you fail regularly, pray that God help you with that. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. God, you are so much bigger. Your kingdom you've created, your king you've established, and we are your citizens. We pray that we increasingly delight in your glory and making much of your name each and every day.